Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Reflect Forward. I'm your host, Carrie Siggins. I hope you're having a fantastic day. I am embarking on a no negativity challenge for 24 hours to see uh, what kind of changes happen in my life. I'm just so tired of all the negativity that's uh, that's out there, and I am definitely feeding into it by complaining or whining or... I don't know, just generally not feeling great. So I decided that's it. I have to take it into my own hands because I'm the only one who can control the thoughts I have and the words that come out of my mouth. And I'm going to not say anything negative, not talk about anybody, not complain, nothing that would put negative vibes out into the universe for 24 hours. So I am embarking on that journey tomorrow morning uh, as soon as I wake up. And I'll give myself 24 hours and just see what it feels like. Of course, part of that I'll be sleeping, so it's not entirely fair. But I think it'll be a good way to see how much better life can be if you're not complaining. That means I can't read the news, which I am a news addict. I love reading the news. I love politics. Uh, I know it's weird, it's crazy, and probably somewhat sick. But... I know I'm not the only one out there, and so to not be putting negativity out in the world, I have to not read the news, so no more doom scrolling. Uh, I think it's going to be really good. So that's going to be my next 24 hours, and uh, I will report back on how it goes. I encourage you to consider doing the same. Okay, let's talk about my guest today. I am really pleased and honored to have Yosh Eisbar on the show today. Yosh is a serial startup guy. <laughs> uh, he has uh, started, he's been part of several startups and, and most recently just started a new company called Fulfilled, which he'll tell you all about in the show. I met Yosh uh, through the IoT company that I, that Stone Age bought uh, in March of 2020. And my director of sales wanted to introduce me to uh, Yosh and his business partner. We had done some work for them uh, in prior years, and it turns out Yosh was in YPO, not in my chapter, but we had all kinds of things in common, and we hit it off. And now we are good friends and, and doing all kinds of things to support each other. So uh, Yosh, not only is he a serial startup guy, uh, he is also a mindfulness practitioner, uh, the, uh, the company he started before Fulfilled, it was called Nimble, which was an SAP uh, service providing company, which he'll tell you a little bit about it too. Uh, he loves blending the what he calls the mind mindfulness traditions and the startup grit. grit. And he does this by documenting his thoughts and his journey in his startup sutras, uh, which he has a website and puts them out on LinkedIn. And he's going to turn into a book. And his goal is to maybe save uh, some people from making the same mistakes that he did uh, in his startups and uh, and be, maybe be entertained and, and laugh a little bit along the way. So I'm really excited for you to meet him. Hang tight and I'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. I'm so excited for you to meet my guest, Yosh Eisbar. Yosh, thanks for joining the show today. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Carrie, for having me. Great. So you're a startup guy. Tell us why you're passionate about startups. Absolutely. So I've been in the startup world for, uh, for in essence, my entire professional career. And I think one of, the, one of the reasons is I've been told that I'm an awful employee. So me having to report to people is not bode very well. And I think just naturally me gravitating towards the autonomy that is, uh, is afforded to the startup world is one which uh, really resonates a lot for me. I think the other thing with a startup is the aspect of growth. And I, again, I've been called many things and one is a growth junkie. And so the fast nature of a startup Quite frankly, the uh, as existential uh, component of always trying to ensure that you're able to not only uh, first survive but then thrive, that level of excitement and adrenaline and growth and build and creativity is one which I found you know, fits my personality to the T. 
So let's talk a little bit about that growth junkie because I like that a lot. Uh, and there's lots of different reasons why people get involved with startups or, or choose to do a startup. So is your motivation growing a company and adding building value to, to sell it or is it to create a great customer experience or customer service or product or a combination of both? I think it's really all the above. Uh, ain't gonna lie, um, you know, from a financial perspective, the ability to build your own opportunity and being um, able to kind of craft your own path as an entrepreneur from a financial perspective, from a startup, if uh, uh, if you're able. That for me, the financial aspect, without question, is is another driver. Um, I think the other driver is. In, a, in the startup world, as a generalization, we've got the opportunity to be a lot more nimble, be able to pivot more quickly uh, on many different aspects, one of which is um, being able to provide better experience for our customers. And so being in a large organization, there tends to be more uh, gatekeepers, more decision makers, more uh, bureaucracy, more politics. In a startup, I mean, in, in when in my past startup of twelve years, you know, we I had the ability to make decisions like that, and so if we needed to hone in on a specific deal, or be able to come in at a at a lower margin, or if we wanted to have some type of project be research and development, or building brand, or creating a whole new business line. These are things that uh, I was afforded the opportunity, you know, being in a startup. So the nimbleness, the the ability to pivot quickly, definitely in my mind, is a huge component of the entrepreneurial startup world. Yeah, I love that aspect of it. And even though Stone Age isn't a startup company, that's the way I try to run it, is to keep that nimbleness there because it's going to be a startup that disrupts us. It's not going to be a a competitor that we've had for the last 30 or 40 years, most likely. I'm not saying it, it could never happen, but I pay way more attention to the startups because they do have that nimbleness and the ability to say, oh, I can do this quickly. So I really try to run us like a startup. Hey, we can be a 40-year-old startup. <laughs> And uh, and agileness is is a core value of ours for that very reason. So that really resonates with me. That's awesome. And Stone Age is lucky. Uh, they've got leadership that understands that and, and you're able to operate more like a dinghy as opposed to a steamship. Quite frankly, I think that's the way that so many organizations now from startup all the way to Amazon, they're they're being a lot more entrepreneurial uh, to be able to, you know, gain an advantage for sure. All right, so give us some insight into your latest venture fulfilled. What problem are you trying to solve? All right, let's get into it. So um, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> my my latest uh, latest venture is an intelligent warehouse management platform called Fulfilled. My business partner Michael Pytel, or Professor Pytel, as he's often known, and I have been together for fifteen plus years, and our old company. Uh, or our previous startup, most recent, was a enterprise software uh, business called Nimble. It was a bootstrap, self-funded uh, company. Mike and I started in 2009, and we scaled it and recently exited just this past year after the acquisition of a publicly traded uh, global competitor. We are, in essence, taking a whole host of the lessons learned that we did at Nimble and we are evolving it into Fulfilled. So at Nimble, we worked in the enterprise uh, software space, a large business software package called SAP, and we would often build uh, custom IP, intellectual property, custom software, which would plug into SAP on behalf of our customers. What we never did in the Nimble days was productize it. We never shrunk wrap it, and then we would use that IP and sell it to the greater market. What we are doing here at Fulfilled is we're leveraging that experience that we had uh, back in the day, and we are now going hyper-focused within the warehouse management world, which is well ready for disruption. And not only are we building an intelligent native cloud warehouse management software with machine learning, with digital twin, with core warehouse, I'm not gonna bore you, but a whole bunch of rich warehouse functionality. 
but, or and, we are also bringing in the hardware aspect, which right now is disparate within the competition. So we've got the intelligent cloud-native warehouse management software, software as a service, and we've got real-time location tracking, 5G, ultra-wideband technology within the warehouse. So we've got beacons that are uh, in a warehouse. We've got scanners and lanyards and all this triangulation going on with this rich data around where do assets exist, where are employees working, what's the pattern of the employees, all that rich data is going back into the software then to provide proactive system recommendations, blah, blah, blah. So that's kind of what we're at. We're super excited. The, the market is ready for disruption and we're trying to disrupt. So how did you pick warehouse uh, logistic and logistics as the next step after you sold Nimble? So uh, we were focused in the Nimble days around several market verticals. And I think one of the things that we learned at Nimble or that you learn at a startup is um, the more focused you are and good at what you do from a specialization perspective, the higher value you can bring to the marketplace. And so in the Nimble days, we worked in many different industries, but some of the industries that we spent a lot of time in were manufacturing, wholesale distribution, uh, 3PL, logistics, CPG. Those were some areas we had some great success. And ironically or serendipitously or, you know, fill in the adjective with COVID, so much in what everyone's saying is that, uh, which I believe is that, you know, 10 years has now been accelerated into 10 months worth of time. So we feel like we're also in good timing. The concept around fulfilled and manufacturing or warehousing within this manufacturing world predates COVID. Uh, we just feel like, though, that the market is is really receptive to this type of this, this software hardware platform. All right, let's talk about you and your par your partner, Professor Pytel. Uh, it, I love that you two keep teaming up to do these ventures. And I think I read an article saying this was maybe your fourth one. So what's the secret to your relationship success? Uh, I probably need to bring a bottle of scotch, um, <laughs> you know, your favorite beverage. So um, I think statistically, they say that 80% of businesses, small businesses fail because of partner uh, conflict. And I, I would think that it may even be higher. You know, working with a business partner is as or almost as intimate as a marriage. And, you know, Michael and I, we've had a, a long relationship since 2005. Correct, this is our fourth venture working together, second startup. And it really is, uh, I ain't gonna lie, like it's a challenge. And I think that Michael and my relationship has evolved over the years. And I can say that without uh, hesitation, our relationship now is the strongest it's ever been. But it doesn't mean that it hasn't been uh, challenging. And Michael is tremendously talented. He's the 1% of 1%. And, you know, uh, I bring uh, some value to the table. But we're both strong knuckleheads. And we both have uh, strong egos. And uh, over the years, those egos have definitely um, have uh, bumped heads. And I think the key is that as much as you can, which is super important, um, having transparency, being constructive, being vulnerable, and being empathetic, those are the key aspects which, quite frankly, we haven't had throughout our, throughout our experience. And so uh, I am blessed that uh, Michael and I are still together after all these years and blessed that he's been my business partner. But, you know, there's good times and bad times for sure. 
Yeah, I, I really appreciate your honesty with that because I think anybody who has started a business uh, with another founder has experienced very similar things. And it happens within executive teams, no doubt. Um, you know, people who have different ideas about the, how the company should be run. I mean, I had a COO who wanted to be CEO and we tried for years to figure out how to be able to coexist. And we worked on so many things and did coaching and like even quasi counseling of like trying to figure out like, how do we do this? So our, our styles can both mesh. And, and, um, so I know how difficult it is and ultimately, you know, it just, we just had, had to part our ways so we could still remain friends. But, um, I think it's a very real thing and something that I don't know that a lot of people like think about, especially who aren't necessarily founders or who are in those really like, you know, kind of co positions where, you know, you have to work really well together to make, important decisions for your organization, realize how important, it, how much work it takes to work on that relationship. I think you're right. It is a lot like a marriage. You have to look at it as I'm committed to this and what am I going to do to make sure I can work through conflict? So I appreciate your honest answer there. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, the, the emotional aspect I think is often not appreciated or uh, really explored. And uh, I mentioned before, I mean, the vast majority of partnerships fail. I think the other key aspect is self-awareness. And there really needs to be self-awareness on both sides, right? Like I need to know what I'm good at and what I'm not good at. And, and I need to be able to defer to Michael when we're talking about certain things that he crushes. And sure, I have an opinion, but I need to be able to defer to him to be able to run with that and be be comfortable with letting go of the reins. And then the other part, which I had mentioned before, is the constructive dialogue. I mean, you can be passionate. I can be passionate. I can be forthright. I can be strong. But I need to be constructive. And if I'm going after someone, and again, this 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 holds true to whether it's your business partner or whether it's your manager or whether it's someone that, that you're working, that, that, that reports into you, there needs to be a level of constructive discussion because if you are hurtful or insensitive, it erodes all sense of trust. So, yeah. You know, I, I you say that, you know, we don't really want to talk about the emotional aspect of it. And I agree with you. And I think that that's a, a mistake a lot of people make is that it's like, oh, well, this is the workplace. So we just need to leave that stuff out of it. And it's not true because we're all human and we are all messy and we all have emotions and emotional management is is so important in our maturement from that's my son's word maturement uh from you know a young age all the way through adulthood right we're always hopefully maturing emotionally and i talk to my teammates a lot about that emotional management is so important and that's what we're going to work on whether it comes out in an angry outburst or it comes out with by shutting down or it comes out in tears we have to be able to understand when those triggers are coming and deal with it because we're all human and we're in the workplace. And I will tell you, it's a very uncomfortable for people, a lot of people, not everybody, to have those conversations about emotion does happen at work all the time. So I think it's a really valid point that you brought up. No, I, I'm, I'm a big, big, big believer in that. And, and I think it, I know that it's taken uh, me uh, years and years and years and decades to try to get incrementally better. But I, I, I was reading recently in terms of EQ is greater than IQ. And, uh, you know, it's trite, uh, but it's true. Emotional intelligence is uh, paramount for successful relationships, whether a startup or other. Yeah, I agree. I'm now on to like this next level of how do I like let go of my attachments to things. When I get really triggered, it's usually because I'm attached to something. I'm attached to my opinion, an idea, the way I've always done something. And so like, how do I manage my emotions now by not having so many attachments to things? And that's a really big challenge to, to get to that point, just to be like, okay, I'm gonna just let this go and see what happens. It's like, whoa, this is really uncomfortable. But it's also the root of all of, I don't know, our problems. It usually comes from an attachment to something. What are your thoughts on that? 
some Buddhist tenets around non-attachment are, are, are fundamental to how we approach uh, the workplace and how we approach life. And much of that has to do with, and I'm no expert, I'm an expert in, in attachment. I'm not an expert in non-attachment. But the ability to flow, the ability to, to let go, the ability to defer, uh, much of that has to do with insecurities and fear and ego, and uh, it's a it's a practice without question. It's it's a tough practice. All right. So, how does mindfulness play into all of this for you? I know you're a a mindfulness uh, guru, or uh, certainly passionate about it. <laughs> so, how how does it how does this play into your life and, and your business? Sure. Uh, great segue. So. Uh, I'm not. I'm not a guru. I am not an expert. Definitely a practitioner. Uh, practitioner for a long time. You know, I, mindfulness pervades, uh, is pervasive, and 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 is in every aspect of our lives. And as you'd mentioned before, developing the emotional intelligence among your company and your teams is is a real evolved way to approach healthy businesses and healthy relationships. I think that. The more that we're able, specifically in the professional world, to be able to integrate a more thoughtful approach on uh, how we want to build our businesses, run our businesses, interact with our employees, with our managers, etc., um, it can really be a powerful tool. And maybe in many respects, it's no longer a differentiator, but more it's 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 a must-have, especially with maybe some of the new uh, generations of uh, uh, workers that are coming in, where you know, they want to work for a company that has purpose, uh, independent of it. Doesn't mean we got to cure cancer, but you know, what's the purpose of the company? What's important to the company? What are the company's values? And it's not just you know a placard, but how do we live by them? How do we how do we model them? And so, from a mindfulness perspective, one of the things that is a constant golden thread in how we try to operate our lives and our businesses, and again. Disclaimer, no expert, just someone who's practicing and failing often, is how do we respond to things? What's our reaction, right? Viktor Frankl, the Holocaust survivor and Austrian psychiatrist, uh, scholar, wrote in Man's Search for Meaning, you know, between stimulus and response, you know, there's a, there's a space, you know, and in that space is our power to choose, and in our response lies our growth. I wrote it down because it's very important. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. You know, I think that from a mindfulness perspective, the more we're able to pause for a second as opposed to instinctively react is an opportunity for growth and an opportunity for us to be better leaders, be better founders, be better CEOs, be better managers, blah, 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 et cetera. And so... Uh, mindfulness is a huge aspect. I write about it in I'm, I'm in the process of trying to put together some of these thoughts in 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 what, what I what I'm calling the startup sutras. And uh, it's the lessons I've learned, it's the mistakes I've made, it's some of the good things I've done and kind of how we as members of a greater organization in a business, you know, how can we be more effective? So I love that quote that the growth happens between, you know, the stimulus uh, the stimuli and our response. And it reminds me of just on Monday, I guess it was uh, my son, my eight year old son, who's the most articulate, amazing, profound human being I know, came in and I'm doing yoga. And he says, uh, Mama, can I go down and watch TV? And I said, after you read for 10 minutes. And he negotiates because he negotiates everything with me. So we negotiated on five minutes. And then, but I was irritated because I'm in the middle of doing yoga, being relaxed and you know, being mindful. And he says, so that's okay. I was like, whatever you want, Jack, fine. Just do whatever you want. You do anyway. And he closed the door and about 30 seconds, he comes back in and he has this big lip and you know, holding back tears. And he says, you know, mom, I really don't like it when you respond that way to me. And I pause and I was like, oh, God, you're so right. Like it was such a snarky comment between 
you know, my annoyance that I was interrupted in my yoga and you know, he wanted to watch TV instead of just do what I asked him to do for read for 10 minutes. And I gave this response, this reaction. And the way that he said it was so profound because like, that's where the growth was. Like I didn't have to be that way to him because I was annoyed for other reasons besides, well, I do get annoyed with TV, but you know, I, I just was so appreciative that he came back in and he told me that, like, what a lesson. And I've thought so much about that over the last couple of days because it's so true. Like, do I really, you know, I do I really want him to say to me, I don't like it when you respond that way to me and I'm not teaching him the right way when I respond in a snarky comment. So I just had this like real example <laughs> with a, a lesson from my eight-year-old, which of course there's so many profound lessons that our children teach us um, in that, that very exact, that same exact lesson right there. Yeah, no, totally. I've got uh, with, I have four, four kids, uh, 12, eight, eight and seven. And uh, they're little teachers, and there's tons of teaching moments just like that every day, absolutely. And it really does just take being mindful, um, but it's so hard to do. How are you practicing to get better at being more mindful? And especially, not just in your own personal life, but how do you bring that into your business? So it's, again, it's hard. I mean, I think that's why they call so much, so many of the mindfulness traditions practices, um, whether it's yoga or whether meditation, it, it's a practice and it's constantly, it needs constant reinforcement. I mean, for me, uh, I do my best to try to carve out time, hopefully every day while, um, while it's quiet, ideally in the house, which is before folks wake up. Um, and I try to carve out some, some, some quiet time just to kind of sit and breathe. And so I have a, I have a, a pretty regular Vipassana practice of seated mindful breathing. So for me, I mean, that's the, one of the most consistent practices that I've had over the years. Uh, I can tell you that I know for me, that when I'm able to sit, that my day starts out differently. And the way that I react, at least initially, uh, is different. So it, it's had a profound effect on me. But everyone's got you know different experience, traditions. Some people need to go running and have some time for themselves. Some people, I don't know, zone out on a video game or what have you. But for me, the sitting is, is been, um, has been an important piece of trying to be a lot more mindful in my day to day. All right, let's pivot and talk a little bit more about Startup Sutras. You mentioned it earlier, but I'd like to uh, do a little bit more of a deep dive into it. So tell us what they're all about and what you're trying to achieve with them. I am pretty active in LinkedIn and I have uh, multiple articles within LinkedIn called the Startup Sutras and they've been dated back years past and I'm starting to get a lot more consistent with writing. And really, they're all about much of what we've spoken about before. You know, how do we better emulate and model empathy? You know, how, uh, how to navigate conflict in a startup. They're definitely startup-centric, hence the name. But it doesn't mean that these types of lessons are not applicable in large organizations. But really, kind of the, the thought behind the Startup Sutras, it's the short, bite-sized nuggets that explore the nexus between startup grit and mindfulness. Yeah, great. So then, so I, I like that. I, I love that statement on there that you've, uh, that you have uh, learned the, the potency of blending those two together. So what exactly do you mean by that startup grit and mindfulness? In the startup world, especially, you know, there is so much focus on type A and no failure, uh, no retreat. And that's not that I don't think that's the most effective way to successfully run a business. And so really the, the, the startup sutras are trying to provide for startups one perspective on how integrating mindfulness tradition, around the middle path, around um, non-attachment, around 
more of an empathetic and vulnerable way, again, without going to the other extreme of being, you know, in the fetal position, you know, crying in the conference room. But how do we blend both of them to be able to have a uh, healthy, fun, and successful uh, startup journey? The end. I love it. I love it. So I haven't thought about it in the potency between, you know, mindfulness and, and grit uh, or mindfulness and, and, you know, financial success, but I completely agree with you. I think that's one of the, the interesting things that the, an interesting way to look at it is how Stone Age has been built with that whole employee ownership mindset. We really are about, you know, taking care of our employees and, and creating this whole different type of, you know, mindset where you think like an owner, you act like an owner and, and you go above and beyond because you care really deeply about taking care of the customer and being a great teammate because this is your business. And I think it is the blending of that idea of we'll share in the success of the company, but we're not going to do it at the cost of our culture because you're all owners. And so I think that it's, um, I really like the way that you say, state that because I think that more and more businesses need to think about it, uh, think about how they're treating people and especially the very people who are helping to build their success. So no, bingo. That's a Bingo. I mean, we are, we are, our companies are, again, super non-prophetic, trite, but our companies are, are built of people, right? And like, how do we win the hearts and minds in a healthy way? So folks yep. are, there's a level of trust. They're committed. They're excited. They're passionate about what they're doing, independent of industry. There's ways to do that in every organization uh, one of my buddies, you know, he's a, a manager, owner of uh, of a, a barricade company, and um, it you know it's, it's it's barricades. It's a wonderful business, but the level of commitment that that he and that group have been able to foster and nurture is one that is admirable, and that can happen in any business. And so you know we think about what 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 resonates with us. You know, we want to be part of something that has meaning. We want to be part of something where uh, our fellow coworkers, as well as leadership, cares about us. And it's not just about a dollar sign or additional billable hour or selling another software or selling another you know, piece of machinery. So that's what drives folks for sure. So. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, we have the same thing. I remember when I first started at Stone Age, I was 27 years old. And I was like, what am I doing here? Right. Industrial cleaning, like, like we make sewer cleaning tools. I thought I was going to be doing something far more glamorous, but I can't even imagine doing, you know, working anywhere else or being anywhere else, leading a different company. And it really is the, the, the purpose that we all have, which we love our products and we're doing really cool things from a technology standpoint and making the world safer and cleaner. But I think that most people's intrinsic purpose comes from like, I'm part of a really great team. Like I love coming to work every day because I'm valued. I feel included. My opinion matters. I laugh a lot. I work hard. I'm creating something of value. And so when we talk about purpose, I think a lot of people think it's like, well, you're not saving lives. You know, this isn't, or trying to fly people to the moon. And it's like, well, no, but that's not where purpose has to come from. It doesn't have to be a social purpose, um, even though there's definitely benefits to that. It can really be truly about just creating a great place to work that allows us to create great lives for ourselves. And then that goes to back to our families and then to our communities. And it has such a ripple effect. Hundred percent. So I have a question for you. So I mean, talking yeah. about um, uh, everything you just mentioned and building that culture and being part of a great team. How has remote working in COVID? How has that impacted? Because it sounds like, which is again so important in so many organizations mm -hmm. about connection. How has COVID impacted um, kind of that connectivity or that team morale or etc. Does Stone Age? been really tough um right before the right before i sent everybody home uh we got an encryption attack and so for 
from Jan February 20th until March 16th was when you know, everything the stay-at-home orders were issued in Colorado, uh, we had never pulled together. We manually shipped every order and our customers did not feel a thing. And it was a nothing but an epic display of teamwork and camaraderie and pulling together like, you know, we're not paying, you know, the those hackers that are the ransom fee, like we're gonna do this and we did it. So to go from our culture that is already very much connected and together to this very intense three weeks of pulling together and working so hard to do everything manually and keep track of it so everything didn't blow up after we went back online to everybody go home and you don't know when you're gonna see each other was incredibly difficult. And we've pulled together really well as a team, but I'm worried about the long-term effects um, on our culture and what that's going to look like. Because I know I'm going to have employees who say, I wanna work from home. I get so much more done. I love having lunch every day with my spouse. My relationship is so much better because of this. Um, I have more flexibility for my kids, but then there's this fairness thing because we have to have people on site to build and ship products. And so, you know, I'm right now we're just starting to look down six months down the road, we're gonna be back in the office. Like, what does this mean? I think everybody, we were a strong enough team that everybody could say, you know, we can figure out how to do this with technology and we've done a pretty good job of it, but everybody's looked at it as like, well, but it's a short-term thing. We'll go back to the way it was as soon as COVID's over. Well, we're not going back to the way it was. So I, I don't know. I don't know how it's gonna look yet. And it's very uncomfortable to be in that place of, I don't know. I, I do know our culture will look different. I just don't know what it's gonna look like. Yeah, I mean, that's fascinating. And I, during the beginning of COVID, I was still part of Nimble and we were having discussions and, but now with Fulfilled, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's a, a much, much smaller team that's already naturally uh, dispersed. So I'm not, I'm not experiencing that right now. I was just curious, you know, how y'all were handling it. Yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting. We're going to have all kinds of um, issues, some that I can already predict and see. And so, how do you address those? And then there'll be things that come up that that I didn't see. And we're gonna have to be flexible and agile because we have no idea what is going to happen. We don't know what's gonna happen with the, the vaccine. And you know, can we all go back to work? I mean, maybe we can't. There's just going to be some very different things that we're gonna have to. That all leaders are gonna have to be that are gonna be thrown at leaders that we're gonna to have to deal with as they come because uh, it's definitely changed forever. Totally, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so a few more questions as we wrap things up. Uh, so the name of my podcast is Reflect Forward, which has many meanings to me, but I'm curious to, uh, to about what you think uh, Reflect Forward means. What does Reflect Forward mean to you? I'd love to learn uh, some of your uh, translations. Uh, for me, I, I love the name uh, first and foremost. I think it's I think it's super thoughtful. I love the word reflect, and uh, again, the ability to kind of pause, provide some space prior to response. So for me, reflect forward really talks about you know as we uh looking in the future as we are you know tackling on something that's up and coming you know can we have that opportunity to be able to pause to have that opportunity to reflect to to create some space and so for me it's 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 the ability to create some space some reflection some pause you know as we're about to tackle the next thing what does it mean for you yeah so um, it's how I've lived my life forever, but I didn't really realize it until I, uh, my life fell apart in 2006. It was on its way, way for falling apart for, for about five years before that, but I had a pretty, pretty bad drug addiction. And in Labor Day of 2006, um, things got really bad. And as I was recovering from, from over, almost overdosing, um, and thinking about what my life would look like. All I was doing was sitting there beating myself up for the decisions I had made. And, you know, I knew that I was better than that. And I, I, I could was had so much more potential than what I was living up to, but I was also thinking that I deserved what, 
you know, the life I had created for myself. And at that moment, like I had this flash of like, your future can be so different. And I knew that I needed to go home. So I was living in Austin, Texas at the time and home was Colorado. And so right then and there, I knew that I had to go home and I had to go back to Durango and um, reimagine an entirely different life for myself. And so it was in that moment of reflecting on the past five years of my life and, and really what had led up to that. Uh, and then, you know, knowing that I wanted something different, but not knowing exactly what it was going to look like. That was, that was my moment of like truly profound, life-changing reflecting forward. So I packed up everything I owned. Six weeks later, I was driving to to from Texas to Colorado and I cried the entire way because I had no idea what I was gonna do. Like, how do you get a job in Durango? What am I gonna do? I'm 27 years old, I'm going home to live with my mother. Like, this is not what I imagined my life to be like, but I just knew I needed to be there. And so that is like the fundamental thing for me of reflecting forward of, this, I have to make this change and I can analyze it to death and I can use it to propel me to a different future. That's awesome. I, I didn't know that. No, yeah. that's awesome. Thanks for yeah. sharing. Yeah. Thanks for asking. I appreciate it. All right. So, uh, throughout all this conversation, you've given so many great pieces of advice, but there's one thing that you could tell leaders who are looking to be the very best at what they do, uh, do this. What would it be? Hmm. I would say that you know, in a leader in the leadership world, especially in the in the startup world, for sure, if you're able to surround yourself with not even like-minded, but surround yourself with trusted, confidential peers that have a, in the business world have a strong professional uh, experience, that that has an opportunity to be a game changer. And for me, not uh, probably indifferent for you, I, I joined a, a business networking organization several years ago and was going through a real tough spell with uh, my business partner, with Mike. And we were in, from a business perspective, crushing it. But from an emotional perspective, it was really challenging just uh, the amount of stress on so many different levels. And so I would say succinctly to answer your question, Finding peer support, and whether it's a YPO, whether it's an EO, whether it's a Vistage, whether it's a self-created peer networking organization where you're able to meet frequently, uh, consistently, once a month, being able to carve out that special time to be able to share what you're going through, learn from what other people are going through, be able to reflect, being able to process, being able to sometimes provide support, sometimes just listen. It can be um, transformative without question. For me, it's my experience. Yeah. Ah, I could not agree with you more. I wish I would have joined YPO earlier than when I did because I, even though I've had great mentors and, and some peer support, being in Durango, um, it's not like you can meet face to face with lots of people who are running, who have the same challenges of running a, a global manufacturing company. Uh, and so I've learned so much from my YPO peers. I'm so incredibly grateful for it, even if it's just sometimes like, Oh, good. I'm not the only person who's going through this. I felt like I was alone and really you're not. So I, uh, I love the, uh, I love that answer and, and could not agree with you more. Awesome. Okay. So what's next for you? Well, uh, my daughter, she's got, um, theater practice, so I got to go take her to theater. I've got actually a forum <laughs> startup, uh, meeting tonight. International starts at four 30. Probably have to cook dinner. So tactically, that's How about, what's... Are you, writing a, are you writing a book? Come on, come on. Tell, tell us about your book. So um, so with the Startup Sutras, um, I am starting to put a lot more form and energy behind it. I'm throwing it out to the universe. So yeah, uh, in terms of um, some, some uh, goals and objectives, I'm looking to um, have the Startup Sutras uh, published by the end of the year. So that's requiring some committed time in front of the computer and writing and deleting. 
Um, so that's that's a that's a big one. And then with uh, kind of my core business with Fulfilled, we are full on in um, startup grind, and we've got our MVP to be delivered by the end of this quarter. So we've got another couple months, and so Professor Pytel and his team are grinding away at that. He's, they're doing all the heavy lifting there, and at the same time, I am in discussions with uh, prospective beta customers, uh, along with those that we already have, to be able to have early adopters and customer references. And then at the same time, we're looking for some strategic capital to help us put some more gasoline on the fire to be able to scale. So um, got some BHAGs, as they say, uh, big, hairy, audacious goals to uh, complete within the next couple months. So. That's great. That's great. Well, good luck with uh, with writing a book. I know that it's not easy. I'm trying to do the same thing, and uh, also while running the company and and being a being a parent. So, <laughs> I wish you the best of luck. How can people find you? So I am uh, always about connection, always about networking, always about meeting folks. And uh, primary uh, method of communication is on LinkedIn. So uh, on LinkedIn, you can find me, Yosh Eisbart. We also, um, I also have a website, startupsutras.life, which is um, a compilation of many of the sutras that I have online on LinkedIn. And if folks have any questions or ways that I could be of value through network, connection, feel free to reach out to me via email, which is yosh at fulfilled, F. U-L-F-I-L-L-D dot I-O, no E, fulfilled.io. I uh, would love to connect. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show today and uh, sharing your experiences and your thoughts on life and leadership. It's been a profound conversation. Thank you, Carrie. Thank you for having me. Thank you for sharing some things with us. So uh, great, great, great uh, podcast. Thanks. All right. Hang tight. And we'll be right back. Okay, I'm back. I hope you enjoyed getting to know Yosh a little bit better. Such a great guy. All right, so my question of the week uh, comes from a conversation that I had with one of my employees who was really struggling with the desire to be liked as a leader and the difficult decisions and hard conversations that you have to have as a leader and make as a leader and how to balance that. So she was feeling like she shouldn't uh, reprimand somebody or give tough feedback because she was afraid that that person would no longer like her as a manager. And so I was really glad that we had this conversation because I too have uh, felt that same way uh, and still do a lot of times. And uh, the journey to being a well-respected uh, leader is, is uh, one that is never ending, that's for sure. So I talked to her about the fact that it's not really about being a liked leader, although there's nothing wrong with wanting to be liked and there's nothing wrong with being a leader who is liked by others. In fact, lots of good things can happen from that. What really we need to strive for is being an authentic leader. And being an authentic leader means that you are straight up, that you keep it real, that you speak your truth, that you are honest about what you see, and you are not afraid to course correct and give feedback and help people on their performance journey. Authenticity is the name of the game, and that is what will lead to respect. When people know where they stand with you, when they know what to expect from you, they know that you're going to help them, even if it means having a difficult conversation and hearing something that they don't want to hear, that will help bring out the very best in people, which is what people want. And so my, I told her, your goal should be to be authentic. And if you're holding back, then you're not being authentic. So figure out how you want to give this tough feedback in a way that is you, that is authentic, that is helpful, but it's honest and it's direct and it you're holding that person accountable. 
So I wanted to share this with you because I know many of you also have this same uh, affliction, wanting to be liked. It's a, a common, I mean, it's natural. It's, it's what humans want. We want to be part of something. We want to feel included. We want to be accepted for who we are. So this is not something that we should try to push away. It's something that we should accept as part of who we are and figure out how to be authentic and uh, accountable and hold others to accountability, uh, but also do it in a way that makes you feel like, you know, hey, I'm being a great leader and I can be liked and that's okay. So how do I do it? Well, first I... Number one, I've had to learn how to or learn to be okay with the fact that my decisions are not going to make everybody happy, but my role as a leader is to make sure that my team is on the right track and that we're going, that we're all pulling in the same direction and executing the vision and the strategy. And not everybody's going to believe in that. Not everybody's going to agree with it. And that's okay. So I have to still make decisions about what I think is best for the organization, best for the team, best for the individual with the information that I have. And I very well could be wrong. I've been wrong a million times, uh, but that still means I have, doesn't mean that I, I don't make the decision. I do. You still have to make the decision. I think what helps with that is explaining the why behind your decisions. You need to bring people along. And even if people don't necessarily agree with it, if they understand why you're doing it and feel that you're being honest and transparent, it will create loyalty and trust. Don't be afraid to have the hard conversations. People want to know where they stand with you. Uh, so instead of holding back, coach and guide them. Remember that we're all learning and you're just teaching them how to perform better, teaching them what your expectations are, and then letting them live up to those expectations and meet those performance standards. Uh, I think that's a really important piece of this. I think it's really important to be direct, but you can do it with kindness and respect. Consider how you want people to feel when they leave your presence. I want people to feel empowered and that I believe in them, even if I'm giving tough feedback. So I choose my words and my tone and my timing with that in mind. I don't want someone to feel reprimanded or insecure, even if it's tough. Um, it doesn't mean that I'm not holding them accountable, but they're still empowered to make a change. I'm also open and I share things about myself and that allows me to connect with people and having a little bit of vulnerability shows that, you know, that you're human and we all are human. Leaders are no different than anybody else. And when we have the humility to say, I've really screwed up or I'm nervous about this, we can build long lasting relationships and deep connections where people want to be around us. They respect us and they like us because we're being authentic. So that's my advice uh, on likability. I hope that resonates with you. Uh, please feel free to reach out and, uh, and ask me a question and I'll put it on the show. Thanks so much. Have a great day and I will see you on the next episode of Reflect Forward.